I greatly appreciate this opportunity to, to address you. Now, the subject, the title of my talk today is, is called Revisiting Sovereignty and Recognition of Oppressive Governments with a Focus on Myanmar. But as you shall see, it has relevance even uh, to those events that are taking place in, uh, in Europe, especially with Belarus and potentially even with Ukraine. Um, I'll leave that you guessing until the very end when I address those issues. Now, the, sub the picture on your screen is the picture of the signing ceremony um, of the Westphalia Treaties of 1648 that ended the 30 years war in Europe that has been interpreted by some of the most renowned international lawyers, international relations scholars, and former state officials like Henry Kissinger as establishing the foundational principles of international law and relations, namely that the principle of legal sovereignty means absolute autonomy within the territorial boundaries of the state. And such autonomy means that there can be no limits on what those who claim to exercise the sovereign powers of their state can impose on their subjects within their territory. The late Fletcher School jurist, Leo Gross, writing in the American Journal of International Law in 1948, asserted that the acceptance of the UN Charter in 1945 brought to mind its European predecessor, the treaties that constituted the Peace of Westphalia. And he claimed that it was the first of several attempts in Europe and then ultimately the world to establish an international community of states uh, essentially focused on sovereignty over their territories and subordinated to no earthly authority. Leo Gross further asserts that the Peace of Westphalia was indeed the starting point of modern international law. However, he then proceeds to point out that the legacy of the Peace of Westphalia was misinterpreted as establishing the principle of absolutist sovereignty. And that will be the focus of much of my presentation today. Other reputable scholars who have delved into the Treaty of Westphalia also claim that there was a highly inaccurate interpretation of the treaties and they call for a re-examination of what the real legacy of the Treaty of Westphalia should be about. I joined those ranks and I claimed that the Treaty of Westphalia was not only establishing limited sovereignty based on an enforceable rule of law for Europe, it should also be regarded as one of the earliest major international treaties on human rights, focusing in particular on religious rights, which had enforcement mechanisms although as history has pointed out, not perfectly uh, uh, effective ones. Now, to address another jurist, uh, Benjamin Strauman, uh, the Austrian and New York University scholar, writing in 2008 uh, in the Constellations volume states the following, rather than determining the absolute sovereignty of the princes and their estates, the people you see in the picture, having the power to determine the religion of their subjects, the Westphalia treaties expressly said that such sovereignty could only exist as long as each of the states provided minimal protections of all members of the recognized religious sex. He added, and I quote, whatever sovereignty the electors, the princes and the estates of the Holy Roman Empire enjoyed in their territory, the private exercise of religion was no longer subject to their sovereignty. Indeed, the treaties gave the religious sex legal rights, and if they were encroached, they had the right to go to a form of interna international secular adjudication 
for, for, for adjudication of their rights based on the treaties. Now, another writer, David Croxton, writing in the International History Review in 1999, um, also asserts that one of the major parties to the Westphalia Treaties, France, claimed that the treaties allowed legitimate intervention in the affairs of another state to defend the other's fundamental laws, granting subjects and intermediate bodies religious rights. Now, some would claim that this was one of the earliest examples of permitted intervention, which some would say is reminiscent of the disputed right of humanitarian intervention in modern era um, uh, disputes. However, uh, that has to be cautioned because as we see, it has also been abused by countries such as Russia in using humanitarian intervention as we see today, even in, in, in the Ukraine. However, I claim that the Westphalia treaties did not establish the principle of absolutist sovereignty. Unfortunately, that concept has now been used by the most authoritarian states in the world to claim that that is the foundations of international law, which should be respected and observed at all, at all costs. Now, modern international lawyers have accepted the concept of absolutist sovereignty pointing, for example, to some of the earliest writers on international law in the 17th century. They often quote Hugo Grotius, who writing in 1625 made the following statement. The power potestas, which is called sovereign, summa potestas, whose actions are not subject to the legal control of another, is such that they cannot be rendered void by the operation of another human will. However, as I've just pointed out, the Peace of Westphalia itself made the princess subject to the legal control by the imperial courts, and indeed subject to the pledge by France and Sweden to enforce the constitutional provisions of the treaties relating, relating to the religious sex. So what do I assert is the real legacy of the Peace of Westphalia? It is that sovereignty under the rule of law in Europe was not absolute and could be contingent both externally and inter, inter, in, uh, internally. And what I'm proposing is that concept of the rule of law in Europe, which was essentially established by the Peace of Westphalia, should have been extended globally to make sovereignty under an international rule of law. Now, Patrick Milton, another writer, uh, describes the misinterpretation of the Peace of Westphalia in his 2019 book uh, titled The Law of Nations and Natural Law. And he asserts that what was happening with these early architects of modern public international law, uh, writing on the legacy of the Treaty of Westphalia was really a form of propo proposing an absolutism within the framework of the empire, uh, or as the final stage of the evolution of the empire into an overarching system of sovereign states. Sadly, however, he and others have pointed out that this misinterpretation started almost immediately after the Peace of Westphalia itself was concluded. Um, also, he also points out, as others have pointed out, that other great architects of public international law, like um, Jean Baudin, writing in the 16th century, or Emma de Vattel, or writing also in 1758, while they also uh, made statements regarding sovereignty as absolute and perpetual power, or as Emma de Vattel argued for sovereign equality and non-intervention. However, even these early architects after 
Hugo Grotius, was also very, very firm in their claim that there was no prince in the world who was not subject to the fundamental laws of their societies and DOS constitutions of God and nature, and could give their subjects lawful cause for revolting by their tyranny. Likewise, in, in the modern era, the legendary jurist uh, Lasser Oppenheim in his landmark text in 1905 made the following statement, state sovereignty has become conditional to recognition by other sovereign states and a subsequent membership in the family of nations. He continued, the conditional membership in the family of nations involves a contradiction. A sovereign state must act in a dignified manner. It must use its sovereignty with restraint by respecting the human rights and fundamental freedoms of its citizens. In other words, according to Lazar Oppenheim, it must employ its sovereignty in a non-sovereign way. Now, Leo Gross, who started the discussion on the misinterpretation of the Treaty of Westphalia, continued that this interpretation led to an era of absolutist states in Europe who were jealous of their territorial sovereignty. He claimed they were more concerned with the preservation and the expansion of their power than the establishment of a true rule of law in Europe. Gross continues that in the 19th century, after the Napoleonic Wars and the Congress and Council of Europe, this misinterpretation of Westphalia continued to lead to the absolutist notion of sovereignty entrenched in the Hague Peace Conferences, the League of Nations, and ultimately the UN Charter, which entrenched the inherent weakness of such a concept of sovereignty in the UN Charter itself. In my book on global governance, human rights and international law, I assert that the correct interpretation of the legacy of the Peace of Westphalia should be that it was supposed to be about the legitimation of the exercise of sovereign power with limitations on, on how that power can be exercised against their own subjects and against other states. Sovereignty in the Peace of Westphalia was never intended to be about absolute power, which includes the right to brutalize their subjects as many authoritarian governments claim today. Now, this view is also supported by other modern writers, such as Jean Cohen, who argues that global legal development has led to a new international peace, uh, political culture of sovereignty, namely one that has moved from one of impunity to one that is, focuses on responsibility and accountability. It is not well known that the first draft of the UN Charter at Dumbarton Oaks in 1944 did not contain any real substantial provisions on human rights. It was only because of the storm of criticism from civil society and middle powers who felt they were left out of the great powers attempt to impose a self-interested structure without the rights protection, which eventually led to the hortatory and aspirational language on human rights in the final version of the UN Charter, rather than the strong legal language that imposed restrictions on how sovereign states could treat their own subjects. In contrast, the 1945 final version of the UN Charter entrenched 
what I call is the absolutist forms of sovereignty within the clearest legal language. For example, Article 1 and Article 2.4 of the Charter made territorial integrity, political independence of the nation state, and non-interference as a principal conditions of peace and security, subject only to the powers of the Security Council. That body's duty was to enforce a weak global governance system, in my view. This ultimately would mean, as we see today, that some of the key five permanent members will guarantee not only the absolutist forms of sovereignty of the allies, but also their own, even if it involves the worst atrocities and genocides against their own subjects or the actions of their allies, as sadly we are now seeing even in the context of Europe. Indeed, this system of protecting the absolutist form of sovereignty showed its early tragic flaw, in my view, in the UN Charter, when the United Nations Security Council failed to do anything in the first genocide of the 20th century in East Timor by the state of Indonesia, which set the stage, in my view, for the inactions leading to the genocidal horrors later in the Balkans and Rwanda. So what I am claiming is that it is now in today in fractured societies that seek to remain democratic that we may start seeing finally the democratic world at least, and I emphasize potentially it is only the democratic world, seeking to demand a re-examination of who and what is entitled to exercise any absolutist forms of sovereignty. And the related issue of whether to refuse diplomatic and legal recognition of oppressive governments that claim to exercise such sovereign powers but keep on suppressing and committing atrocities against their own citizens. In my view, the two are linked. And I'd like to quote Eli Laudapak, uh, one of the leading exponents of modern public international law that stressed that sovereignty is, however, more commonly used in its second meaning to describe the jurisdiction and control that those who exercise power in a state may exercise. So he is drawing a linkage between the notion of sovereignty and the, the ability of those who want to exercise the power of the modern state and what they can do in terms of those, that, uh, those powers. While the granting of diplomatic and legal recognition of governments by others in the international community is often based on criteria which we see now around the world, such as criterion of effectiveness, for example, control at least of some territory, the habitual obedience of a majority of the population, and perhaps a reasonable prospect of permanence. However, commentators like Cambridge jurist Federica Padau has suggested, and I would like to quote her, a sort of mesh, and I like to spell out what mesh is, M-E-S-H, a sort of mesh is emerging where a relationship between effectiveness and legitimacy determines the likelihood of recognition. I suggest, and I, I would like to support her view on that, that present examples in recent history show a failure to demonstrate such democratic legitimacy could become a form of customary public international law against recognition of oppressive de facto governments by major parts of the international community, and especially regarding the rights of such governments to exercise the sovereign powers of their country. Now, I am 
uh, acutely aware that if you're going to assert public international law, especially customary international law, you also have to obviously satisfy uh, the, the requirements of practice and opinion jurists. So what are, are the current examples where there has been a refusal to accept the oppressive governments and, and an attempt to recognize legitimate governments who have been ousted? Well, there are examples. Examples of the non-recognition of oppressive de facto governments include the following. Haiti, in the 1991 to the 1994 period, Sierra Leone in 1998, Ivory Coast in 2011, and the Gambia in 2017. As I will discuss, I'm hoping that potentially that could also extend to Belarus and whatever happens in Ukraine, perhaps that could also be another example. In these examples, when much of the international community sided with an ousted yet legitimate government that lacked effective control, and the main goal of the international community in supporting the ousted government was to restore democracy against the illegitimate government. Now, the, pressing, the most pressing situation today that demands the refusal to, ex to extend recognition to an oppressive government seeking to exercise the country's sovereign powers and instead to grant it to duly elected officials who have formed the government party in exile and may still be working in the country should be the situation created by the military junta in Myanmar. In a report that I and others helped to draft, an NGO, a non-governmental organization, Fortify Rights, working with the opposition national unity government are asserting that the atrocities committed by the junta should be brought before the International Criminal Court by the government in exile and the national unity government in exile should be regarded as the legitimate body to trigger this process. Now, some members of the national unity government are outside the country, but key figures, including the acting president, the prime minister, and 70% of the cabinet of the national unity government are working inside the country. Now, I referred to you um, a report where the uh, NGO, Fortify Rights, and I helped to draft a, a report outlining the atrocities of the, the junta and um, the argument that the national unity government should be recognized as uh, sufficiently authorized to represent the sovereignty and the people of Myanmar. I'd like to um, put on the screen uh, a picture of the report, which um, I'll be happy and I'm sure uh, Oxford University will be happy to send it to anyone who is interested. Um, this report outlines both the, uh, the reasons why the, the, the government in exile has, should have the right to represent the sovereignty and the people of Myanmar uh, to gain access to the International Criminal Court. But what I wanna do now is briefly uh, give you some of the most horrendous actions that the Myanmar military has been doing since the overthrow of the duly elected government and, and as a reinforcement of the type of situation where the international community, at least the democratic parts of the international community should start thinking about sovereignty in a new light and especially in the context of recognition uh, or non-recognition of oppressive governments. So um, I'm just reading from this report, which outlines in brief, um, um, there's uh, much more 
horrific uh, pictures and, 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 and details about what the, good, uh, the, the Junta is doing, but I'll just give you some of the most, um, uh, the briefest accounts of some of their worst actions. So the Myanmar military overthrew the government of Myanmar, duly elected with a huge majority in a coup d'etat on February the 1st, 2021, and arrested senior political and civilian leaders and others. The people of Myanmar immediately protested this junta takeover with various non-violent tactics, including through street protests and establishing a national civil disobedience movement, which, uh, which involved many, many, perhaps the majority of government employees refusing to report for work, essentially bringing to a standstill the daily business of government. The Myanmar military and police have responded to the peaceful protest and perceived opponents of their rule with absolute deadly force, murdering and arresting civilians en masse in towns and cities across the country. The junta and its uh, military other allied forces have used forced labor, raided and destroyed uh, properties, blocked and restrict, restricted uh, access to the internet and medical facilities. They've even attacked healthcare workers and vehicles and terrorized the global population, the general population. At the time of writing the report, um, it, there was an acknowledgement that the junta had killed more than 900 men. The latest reports are that is now coming close to over 2,000. And, and the junta has arrested and detained more than 9,000 people between February the 1st and April 15th, 2021 alone. That number has dramatically increased too. Sadly, however, uh, this, this, uh, these actions of the junta have not just happened more recently. It's also happened in the past where they've targeted communities and ethnic states um, and directly affected millions of people. They've forcefully displaced um, many of these ethnic communities, particularly along Myanmar's borders. They've raised thousands of ethnic villages throughout the country and killed untold numbers of people in these ethnic communities. They have also, as is now well known, engaged in uh, genocidal acts against the Rohingya minority. And essentially we now see uh, those uh, claims of genocidal acts before the International Criminal Court in an action brought by the Gambia, which um, uh, the court has issued its first provisional, uh, provisional measure and, and now is determining whether to go forward with a full discussion of uh, the actions of the, the Kunta in terms of the genocidal acts. So given these horrific actions by the oppressive uh, military junta, uh, Fortify Rights and I are claiming that the national unity government should have the authority to represent and act on behalf of Myanmar. Why the military, why the military is claiming that it is the legitimate government of the country, uh, we are claiming that they do not have the exclusive ability to represent the state. Instead, based on the examples which I've given, Haiti, Sierra Leone, and other examples, if a significant number of states um, can, uh, are recognizing the national government to, rec to represent the sovereignty of the state and the people of international law, I suggest that it could significantly uh, address some of the atrocities of the junta. Now, the, the national government already is, is getting recognition at the highest levels. 
they have met with the highest representatives of the US, UK, J Japan, France, Ireland, the European Union, and many officials at the UN. Indeed, on June 30th, 2021, 150 senators from France signed a resolution to officially recognize the national nuclear government as the official government of Myanmar. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Myanmar, Thomas Andrews, also seemed to be moving in the direction of recognizing the right of the national nuclear government to represent the people of Myanmar. In a statement to the UN Human Rights Council on July the 7th, 2021, he urged member states to have the national nuclear government be embraced as laying the groundwork for a new unified Myanmar. He claimed that the national nuclear government has taken the historic step of welcoming in particular the Rohingya ethnic minority back into the national fabric of Myanmar and has guaranteed them justice and full citizenship rights. Um, in addition, they are also coordinating humanitarian assistance into the country and are seeking to get international justice and accountability for the victims of all the atrocity crimes of the junta, including accessing through the International Criminal Justice, the International Criminal Court. Now, if both Fortified Rights and I are claiming that they should have the sovereign rights to represent the people of Myanmar, how would that happen with the International Criminal Court? Now, if the, the National Unity Government uh, wants to access the court, they have two options. The first one is to lodge a declaration under Article 12, Sub 3 of the Rome Statute to specify the jurisdiction of the court. The second option is to formally accede to the Rome Statute, which involves deposing the instrument of accession with the UN uh, General, uh, Secretary General, who then would have to consider the responses from other states and consider the advice from the General Assembly on whether the national unity government qualifies as the authorized representatives of the sovereign government of Myanmar. However, even if accession is successful at the UN, there is a chance that a state party in the assembly of state parties to the Rome Statute, which established the court, could challenge the validity of the accession. That body would then have to decide on how to settle the dispute, either by a vote or by uh, seeking an action, uh, action, seeking a decision at the International Court of Justice. My advice has been to lodge a declaration under Article Sub 3 that states that Myanmar exceeds to the jurisdiction of the court, whose success depends on acceptance of the declaration by the register of the court, who then transmits it to the office of the prosecutor for further consideration and possible jurisdictional hearing before a trial court in the same manner as was done in, with Palestine. And I was at the International Criminal Court when there was an attempt to have Palestine accede to the formal jurisdiction of the court. A declaration by the national government under Article 12.3 of the statute could provide an immediate jurisdiction of the court to address the specific atrocity crimes, including past crimes, including the genocidal acts against the Rohingya. In my view, if the court were to accept such a declaration, I suggest it would be a modern day le a legacy uh, of the Peace of Westphalia as properly interpreted. It should represent a modern day concept of legal sovereignty that affords the state legal personality in international law, but it also denies that this confers absolute autonomy on those who govern without interference 
if it commits international crimes against its own citizens. Recognition of the national unity government to stop this process would be to recognize, in my view, a form of oppositional sovereignty within a country that could and should be recognized as a growing practice in international and constitutional law. At the time of delivering this lecture, as we all now know, there was a similar situation that has arisen in Sudan, which also has a military usurping power, even though it too has been involved in the most serious crimes and genocide. And sadly, we have also seen it with um, Belarus, uh, with the refusal uh, of the government day to accept the elections uh, in that country. And if, uh, sadly, if, if Ukraine is, is, which has been invaded by Russia with the aim of establishing a puppet regime in Ukraine, um, I, I fully expect that the democratic community would at least refuse to recognize that puppet regime and recognize the legitimate government of Zelensky. In conclusion, I urge democratic states to recognize the sovereignty of the people of Myanmar as represented by the national unity government and support their desire to accede to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court under Article 12, sub 3 of the Rome Statute, thereby being an example of the true legacy of the peace of Westphalia. I shall stop there and I welcome discussion of what I have just been presenting. Thank you very much.